We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing formations of the secular by Talal Asad, page 79, thinking about pain. Right. Thinking about pain, there is a secular viewpoint held by many, including anthropologists, that would have one accept that in the final analysis, there are only two mutually exclusive options available, either an agent representing and asserting himself or herself, or a victim, the passive object of chance or cruelty. Okay, so notice the choice of words. Instead of saying you're either active or you're passive, okay, either you're an agent or you're a victim. Okay? Um, I'm trying to think of what would be a different word other than victim, because victim, as you, as, you know, as you can tell, really has, a, has some connotations to it. Right? Um, what would be another word? Receiver, yeah, yeah, that would probably work. Recipient. But in, in part of the, yeah, recipient would also work. And so part of the secular outlook, however, is that you're either an agent or you're a victim, right? Even in regards to yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so... Um, so you can't see yourself like... Uh, alpha, beta, bro. You have, yeah, to be like be a, yeah. you have to be a victim of something. Yeah. Like, if you're not an agent of it. Yeah, exactly. And, and so... There's also, like, a very base level seems to remind me of, like, a Western, um, like, the duality of masculine and feminine, too, right? Yeah, but yeah. Male is the agent. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really true, too. And even just, like, um, either you're the boss or you're the employee. Okay, continue. When we say that someone is suffering, we commonly suppose that he or she is not an agent. To suffer physical or mental pain, humiliation, deprivation is, so we usually think, to be in a passive state. To be an object, not a subject. One readily allows that pain may be a cause for action, seeking to end the suffering, say. But one does not normally think of it as action itself. Pain is something that happens to the body or that afflicts the mind, or so at any rate we tend to think. Yet one can think of... Yeah, one can think of pain not merely as a passive state, although it can be just that, but it as itself agentive. Okay, isn't that interesting? So we often think of pain uh, through a passive lens, like I'm in pain. But the a the the pain itself can be an agent. It's not a human, but itself how, can be an agent. How so? Can you give an example? Like uh, I think he will, but um, the basic point being that. From a religious lens, um, this pain is hitting you to make did something we, happen. Did we talk about that in the other class or this class? I think it was in this class. When the the, the experience, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the experience yeah. of like pain, yeah. to like relive that moment. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and and so, um, so the pain. So he doesn't say an agent because that would we would then infer consciousness uh, and choice, but it is agentive, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Physical pain is, of course, the object of passion, but also of action. In Paul Valery's Monsieur Test, we have a remarkable account of the attempts by an ailing subject to control his bodily pain mentally. This includes the use of metaphors. The most pervasive of these is the dark image of pain as a hostile alien thing within the body. Jean Starobinsky points John Storobinsky points to the fact that Valerie employs musical tropes 
as when he writes that pain is due to the resistance of the consciousness to a local arrangement of the body, a pain which we could consider clearly and in some way circumscribe would become sensation without suffering, and perhaps in this way we could succeed in knowing something directly about our deeper body, knowledge of the sort we find in music. Pain is a very musical thing. One can almost speak of it in terms of music. There are deep and high-pitched pains. Andantes and furiosos, prolonged notes, fermatas and arpeggios, progressions, abrupt silences, etc. Starobinsky observes here that the musical metaphor is closely connected to a plan for control, because every metaphorization implies an interpretation, and every interpretation involves a distance between an interpreting power and an object interpreted, even if that object is in an event taking place in my body. For Valerie, pain has no meaning, hence its indefinitely interpretable nature. Okay, so before talking about the pain aspect of this, this is fascinating. So, so metaphor, even though this is in the context of music, metaphor is an assertion of power, right? That if I say, you know, you're bright like the sun, okay? I made the statement, but now I'm forcing you to try to make sense of what I just meant, right? So that's an exertion of power. I became an agent in that moment, right? That's, I could have said, that's very interesting. I could have said you're smart, right? But if I say you're bright like the sun, then... Not only am I saying you're smart, but I'm forcing you to try to understand that yeah, I'm saying you're smart. Yeah, you get on my level. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I don't know if I understand the part here when he's saying pain has no meaning. Um, okay, let's keep on. I offer tentatively a slightly different conclusion. Using musical metaphors, or indeed music itself, to fix the body's pain might not, seen, might might not be seen... Might be seen not might be seen not exactly as giving meaning to brute experience, but as a process of structuring that experience. I knew someone who found herself using numbers to anticipate and categorize her experience of pain. Although unsurprisingly, severe pains were number higher, a less obvious structuration was also at work. Only acute, irresolvable pains appeared as prime numbers. Furthermore, the numbering varied according to the social context she was in, Prime numbers were more likely when she was alone. Such structuration doesn't necessarily make pain meaningful. It is simply a way of engaging with it. So the conclusion I offer contrasts with Elaine Scarry's position in her influential study, The Body and Pain, according to which the utter rigidity of pain itself is universally reflected in the fact that its resistance to language is not simply one of its incidental or accidental attributes, but is essential to what it is. For although musical or mathematical structuration, both of which have to be learned, may not constitute language in, an ordinary, in the ordinary sense, it problematizes the idea of pain in itself as necessarily a private, thought-destroying event. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I don't know if it's my fasting brain, but uh, even this overall paragraph, I'm trying to understand the overall point. In terms of some secondary points within the paragraph, um, uh, so, I like how it's referring to pain as a private thought-destroying event. What does thought-destroying mean? You can't really... You can't focus on anything else. Yeah, you can't think about anything else, yeah. right? Like, um, there's a line, I want to say it's in Arabian Nights, but I forgot where. Like, um, you can have this, this, uh, this benevolent king who's trying to take care of everyone in the kingdom. But if that king has a toothache, he's not going to care about anybody, right? Mm -hmm. 
he's going to be more concerned with with the, the pain uh, he has in his tooth, and and so, so yeah. And then there was another thing I wanted to draw. I mean, I think I mean one of the big questions in this paragraph and the previous paragraph is: Does pain have meaning? Okay. From a secular sense, uh, in theory, uh, what do you think? Should it have meaning or should it not? From a religious sense, it often has meaning. From a secular sense? Yeah. No. Yeah. What? Because I think from a secular perspective, the object of the human, uh, this sort of overall object is progression of some degree. Okay. And pain, uh, naturally, because it, it's a thought-destroying event, it, it halts progression. Therefore, it has meaning. Wait. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you just illustrated not, the point. Because it, something won't have meaning if there's pain. But meaning, the, no, no, I don't mean meaning that way. I mean meaning in the sense that uh, it becomes an agent. Because right. it stops you from doing yeah. other things, so yeah. it is an agent. Yeah, like the two things, yeah. that example. Yeah, so the, but the point I'm illustrating is that it seems that we're saying here that in the secular outlook, the attempt is to remove all types of meanings that aren't relevant, right? Oh. Or to remove all meaning and that you can't. So with... Uh, would the goal of a secular outlook be to remove as much pain as possible because it's an external agent? I think I think that's definitely part of this. Yeah, um, that um, you take it as something that is inhibiting you from finding your fulfillment, and and thus we have things like anesthesiology and stuff like that. You know, you know. Because oh, okay, so you will, because with if you don't have pain, you can be your fully sort of realized yeah. self. Um, yeah. And sometimes you'll have pain being part of your fully realized self. And so, yeah, it won't be pain. Uh, pain being part of your fully realized self, I think, is not part of the ideal, ideal secular outlook. But it is a lot of our conversation today, right? This is what made you into you, right? Um, uh, or, you know, what's being described here in the religious sense that pain is there to cause some transformation in you, right? Um, but. It seems that they're saying here that the, uh, in the general secular outlook, pain is an obstacle. Right? Pain is something you don't deserve. Scary asserts that pain is necessarily a private experience. Isn't it, isn't it interesting, like, uh, the name of this person? Scary. Uh, uh, Scary. Oh, Scary, I'm sorry. Well, I don't know how it's pronounced, but, you know, we're talking about pain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Scary asserts that pain is necessarily a private experience and proposes that the experience of one's own physical pain is the very paradigm of certainty, and hearing about another person's physical pain, the paradigm of doubt, because it can never be completely confirmed. Okay, so this is also interesting. So, you know, so, so Descartes is, was trying to figure out, you know, what is it that I can take as absolutely true? And then he leads through this whole series of arguments, which then gets to, I think, therefore I am. Meaning, I can confirm that I exist by virtue of the fact that I think. And here they're saying, um, if you are experiencing pain, that is a certainty. Right? It's, there's no uh, doubt about whether or not you're in pain. Yeah. Right? But you can have doubt about someone else's pain. And yeah. forever the battle between Daisy children and their mothers. <laughs> Explain further. And, you know, when you're sick and your mom's like, no, you're not, get up, yeah. go do something. You're like, I really, you know, yeah, like, I, I think Daisy, Daisy mothers also do this when you're sick. They're like, this is nothing. You yeah. know what I did when, you know, oh, like, totally and you're like, no, I'm really in pain. And they're like, yeah, this is fuckwas. Yeah, there was one time I was sick and my mom didn't believe me. 
Oh, that happens to me she all the time. She believe me, and I went to school, and I threw up all over my Yeah, like, <laughs> something very drastic yeah, has to happen. Like, I got called to the nurse, and yeah. I was like, why didn't you believe me? But yeah. I was dying. <laughs> yeah. I felt so hurt. It's because of the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> no, I had, I literally had perfect attendance in high school. Like, I got an award for perfect attendance. Mashallah. And mashallah. Um, but it was because my parents would not let me not go to school. Right? Oh, that sucks. <laughs> He's like, this was not out of my own... Agents. Yeah, it was, this was this was I was a victim. I feel like we. This is like I'm. I, I'm like I'm like. Oh my god, that must have sucked. I'm like I called up so many. Dude, I missed a lot of high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's continue. I suggest that this secular understanding of pain as inscrutable may arise in part from the experience of animal experimentation of the kind I discussed in the previous chapter, in which observable reactions of the flesh that is subjected to experiment constitutes pain. The question to consider here is whether this claim is true, and if it is, why it should apply solely to pain. Whether one can be certain of another's pain depends surely on who is expressing it to whom, how verbally, for example, or through lamentation, or by facial signs, or by the way an agonized or impaired body is revealed, and for what purpose certainty is sought. Okay, so, so this, is, this is an interesting combination of points. The last point... Um, this innate search for certainty, right, uh, I think is especially big today, okay? um, where there's just like, you know, what do I believe in? And even with fake news, like I saw a headline, I think it was at Yahoo News, that says this whole $110 billion, $110 billion deal is a fake. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. And, and then, uh, and so then on top of that, um, you know, this, I think, you know, you have an innate need for truth, that you have an innate need uh, for a certainty that something can be like your rock to rely upon. Uh, and so, so then pain gives you a type of certainty. Okay? Um, but what this is negating, the secular outlook is negating, is the possibility that I can feel your pain. Right, like you know, we might call it sympathy pain, sympathy pain, or something like that. But um, it's something. It uh, from this outlook, it would be essentially just your imagination you know, that you see someone suffering, and that causes you actual pain. And 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 so the point is that um, you know it is looking at all of us as separate things, you know, meaning. Uh, I think even if you talk to most people, they'll say, yeah, you can feel someone else's pain, but they'll still say it's in, in imagination, right? Um, uh, but I do feel, especially working in this job, right, and just observing people, um, that some sort of transfer takes place in which someone is sharing their pain, and then I'm taking it on, mm-hmm. right? And you can say that, well, what's actually happening is they're feeling relief because they're sharing the pain. And I'm feeling an imagined pain just out of sympathy. But I think it's more than that. Right? The way it seems to play out, I think it seems to be more than that. Couldn't you say, even if you, even if you don't say, even if you're, you, you, you like negate the point that it's actual transfer or something is yeah. happening, couldn't you just be like, well, even if that's not happening, the very fact that their pain, me sort of, experience ex- me seeing them re you know like uh communicate their pain to me somehow 
that's inciting a pain within me. Mm-hmm. That they might not be like related in the sense that they're different pains, right? But the very fact that this one is mm-hmm. inciting it, I feel like that's just as you know. So that would be another way of making, or another uh, outlook of making the point. Yeah, yeah. that um, that it's something beyond imagination. Yeah, right. isn't this part of like the idea of uh, Jesus? Yeah, totally. That, like he's sort of taking. He's by giving it, give it all to me. Yeah. yeah, he's taking that pain. Yeah. Of like humanity, mm-hmm. right, in his sacrifice. Yeah, that's uh, very much it. And is, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, is there a similar notion? Because it's definitely not the same as Isaiah's life and the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. But is there something in the sense where the prophet Isaiah is sort of trying to take the burdens of the ummah? Well, there's a, uh, I have a couple examples. One is when the Prophet, peace upon him, was dying. Uh, he's asking Jibreel, salam, you know, does death hurt this month, this much for everyone? It's supposed to be, death is supposed to be a very, very physically painful experience. Yeah. Right? And so then Jibreel, salam, uh, or the Prophet, peace upon him, asked Jibreel, salam, to give all the pain of everyone in his ummah to him. Right? Mm. I don't know if that was granted. Right? Uh, because there's other hadith narrations that speak about how we all will experience pain uh, in, in the process of death. That's one. And then there's another, this ayah, which may be slightly different from what you're saying, but I think it's, it's in the same ballpark. Um, this ayah at the end of Surah Tawbah, uh, which was really influential for me when I was going through a dark period, that um, the ayah says, you know, that Allah has, I'm paraphrasing, Allah has raised a messenger from among you, and it's very for, heavy for him, when you're suffering, right? And, and so, so the point being that um, uh, that is a type of carrying, right? Which a parent definitely feels when the child is suffering, right? When, if the child is sick, I mean, that's torment for the parent. Yeah. Did you also say then, like the sort of narrations of his prayers for the Ummah, like not even just the current one, but from... You know, through time, like there's there's narrations that he's praying for like the future generations mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I mean Ibrahim alayhi salam, yeah. when he's told by uh, by Allah, you're a, you're an imam for the people, and he says, well, what about my my descendants? Yeah, and it's not just he's he's not just asking about his son; yeah. he's asking about everybody. So they, it feels like they're trying to take something on, regardless. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, do that if you don't already in your prayers. Yeah. You know, think of all the stuff you're praying for for yourself, and maybe for people in your family, friends, and stuff. Uh, pray to Allah for all of your descendants, all of them. And pray to Allah for all of your ancestors. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, so think of how beneficial it would seem that if somebody in your history prayed for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I always love that thing of Imam Sahib Imam Sahib said about, I was just uh, about Yeah, about African Americans. He's like, I, it's my belief that there's so many African American Muslims because their ancestors were yeah. slaves prayed for them. Yeah, I think that's probably there's probably some truth in that. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they made the dua of Ibrahim. Yeah. It's a dua you make. Yeah. Yeah. Is this at the end of Surah Hajj, right? Uh, the one I'm thinking of is, is a little bit into uh, near the half point of uh, Surah Al Baqarah. There's probably others. Yeah. yeah. There's one at, I think, Abdul Zatara helped me memorize one. There's one in Surah Hajj. What does he say? I forget, but it's like the last two ayahs where he talks about his, his progeny oh. and to keep him like rightly guided. So imagine being the recipient. Let's say you are praying for all of your descendants, okay? And people before you are praying for all your descendants, and then your you know, children and their children, the other children are praying for all your descendants. So that last person. <laughs> yeah, man. The best deal. They do. Yeah. They don't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, they won't know, right? Uh, I mean, I even wonder sometimes, like, whatever amount of Iman that I have, as I'm always trying to figure out why did I go in a particular direction, whereas so many of my friends that I grew up with in Sunday school and stuff went in directions very far away from Dean, right? Oh, man. And, I mean, the best answers I can come up with one is, is parents, right? Yeah. Um, but their parents and my parents were all yeah. super tight friends, are still two super tight friends. Um, the circle of friends that I wound up having. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, you know, the prayers, not just of my parents, but people in the past. I, my past. You know, that's, that's amazing you said that because I think of that not, not on like that large of a level, but even like simple things that happen to me. I'm like, wait, why did this happen? Because I, I certainly don't feel like I earned that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this must be someone's duas. And I'm always like, I feel like now, especially with like, you know, when you have a, with like a large group of friends, I'm always trying to track that down. I'm mm. like, I'm going to ask everyone for a duo. Like, we'll see who's... Yeah, yeah exactly. But like now it might be someone in history that you've never yep. seen. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, I know, I like, like, like he said, I feel like uh, it's definitely parents. I feel like, you know, you know, you always get that sense where you're like, man, a lot of this is just your parents, you know, or your relatives or whoever, you know, and then obviously close friends too, you know, you just feel that. But like, sometimes you're just like, wow, how did this happen? Like, I just don't feel like I deserve this. Is that, I also feel like in our modern, in sort of the modern sense, like, I don't know, like family, especially like extended family, I feel like isn't stressed as much. And like, prod- oh, totally. like, cause so I'll give you an example I'm thinking of. Like when I met my aunt, I saw her for the first time, probably the second time in my life, like when I went to Florida and like, she was just really affectionate and like, yeah. you know, it was strange to me because yeah. it was strange. I mean, it wasn't strange to me. Like I felt the same yeah. connection, but it was like, it was weird in the sense that like he was a person who I felt like I've known my whole life. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Where if I've only, this is the second time I've ever met yeah. him. That's, yeah. And like, uh, but I also felt like she had such a vested concern in me. Yeah. You know, cause she was like, she knew all these things about my life. Mm-hmm. Like. And so just sort of extending that to, like, I feel like people before used to think more about what will be the product of our work, like, mm-hmm. in our descendants. Mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah and I feel like... And we're, we're very... Uh, our, our era is very vain and individualistic. Yeah. You know? and also the think, children become vanity. Yeah. I also think we don't value, like, blood relations as much either, mm-hmm. you know. I feel like there's something to be said. Again, I think I kind of feel like this more because I grew up in India, where, like, you just, if, even if someone was like, you didn't like them or whatever, the very fact that they were related to you by blood mm-hmm. meant something. Yeah. Where you, there's a certain mercy you have towards them that you might not, and then, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but you just have that, you know, where you're like, you're like, you know, he's a little bit of a punk, but let me just make the off him, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the basic point, uh, so this, uh, this additional point that I'm raising is that in this outlook, um, the idea of actual shared pain, um, I think, is hard to to um, to read or to measure. And there's one other point I want to mention here. Um, uh, the animals one. It was really, yeah. It was it was inspired by that. But um, I mean, I think ultimately it was just um, it may have it been that how do we identify pain to someone else is by signs that we associate with pain. Could it be you? I don't know if we ever had this conversation where we talk about, for example, where he talks about uh, reactions of the flesh, where they say people who have, like, transplants, you know, like, they're certain, they feel certain things, or they feel certain ways, like, you know, like, they got someone else's heart or lungs mm-hmm. or whatever, they feel like these, you know, they feel weird and different, you mm-hmm. know, could that be, 
Could you say that? But I guess but, that's the realm of spirit. Well, I mean, so so what we'd have to do that for that is to see if we can identify some sort of cells or something yeah. that are connected with feeling, intelligence, emotions. Yeah. That if they're transferred, yeah. that that other person will feel it. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I do think that there's probably some type of, of cell structure or cell structure combination in the heart yeah. that has not yet been discovered. For sure. Right? I mean, it is it is said that there are, there are motor neurons in the heart, but I don't know if they're used for anything but for pumping the heart. What is, oh, motor M- neurons? Are, 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 are the cells oh, in your brain. Oh. Right? It has its own, uh, like, action. So it can... The heart can stimulate its own action potential. Yeah, like, without so like, without the so brain, yeah, without everything the brain. else like it, sti- wow. it waits for a signal starting from yeah. the brain. Wow, I didn't but the know heart, that. Yeah. For the heartbeat, it stimulates its own. Yeah, yeah. I did not know and that. So, uh, I wonder, or my theory is that either those cells or some other cells might have a, their own type of quote-unquote intelligence. It, it, not that they stimulate themselves, it also regulates, like, the speed. Because uh-huh. the brain will set it at a certain rate, mm-hmm. but the heart needs to be beating at specific rates. Mm-hmm. So, like, it can go faster or slower. It helps mm-hmm. regulate. Wow. Yeah, my mom had this condition where her heart would, kept going too fast. Yeah. And they had to literally go in and burn a piece of her heart. And oh yeah, because yeah, it was it was yeah it kept firing right yeah. too much yeah, yeah it was it was just yeah I forgot what it's called like atrial fibrillation or something like yeah. that yeah. yeah so they that's kind of cool yeah they literally like <laughs> sorry I'm they, uh, medical but... they they stuck in this thing through her leg yeah. and then while and like you know with cameras went all the way to the to the yeah. heart and then yeah. they burned it was like they were doing electrical work yeah <laughs> crazy is though like they can do they can do so much without like having to literally open that's you amazing, up yeah. you know like. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. One may suppress or cover up such signs. Even unusual silence can be noted as significant, of course. But the point is that pain is not merely a private experience, but a public relationship, as Wittgenstein taught long ago. Indeed, if doubt about another's pain were always irresolvable, as Scarryman claims it, the repeated infliction of cruelty on victims of torture would be hard to understand. Mm. Unless the repeated infliction of suffering is to be accounted for as an epistemological obsession. Mm. Scarry's statement that in the eyes of torturers, the objectified pain of the victim is denied as pain and read as power, strikes me as odd because the denial of a victim's pain implies a kind of certainty for the torturer. Although Scarry's basic claim that is that he must always be uncertain in the matter of another's pain. Why is inflicted pain chosen as the medium for inscribing and reading power if its effect is essentially so doubtful? Okay, so, so yeah, I mean, for the layperson, this, this might make no sense, but we're basically trying to figure out, you know, what is pain and how does it work? So I can say pain is a real thing because I have felt pain, mm-hmm. right? I can say that I'm in pain because I'm physically feeling pain right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm even, I feel compelled to add the word physical, but I'm in, uh, I know there is pain and I, because I am feeling this pain, mm-hmm. right? But the question is, when someone else is experiencing pain, how certain is it for me? Looking from the lens of certainty, okay? Not looking from the lens of whether or not that person can experience pain. Because I would yeah. say, I have experienced pain, Therefore, it is plausible that you have experienced, you yeah. are experiencing pain. But to like know they're experiencing pain. For sure. To know it, yeah. And to know that it is, it is real and to know what it is to them, yeah. That same feeling, yeah, you could, you mm-hmm. just know. 
And so then, you know, then there raises a question about a torturer. So a torturer, looking from the outside in, is someone who is imposing, who is inflicting suffering on someone repeatedly. Okay. And so the question becomes, well, okay, then that seems to imply some type of certainty, certainty maybe. Pain, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you have to call it some sort of mad obsession. You know, the repetition. Right. Of just doing it, doing it, doing it. Yeah. Again, this is all looking from an academic perspective, trying to make sense of how all this stuff works. Yeah, yeah. From a practical perspective, you know, you're just torturing the person. Yeah. yeah. And dehumanizing. Sorry. I and so part of it might be the dehumanizing point too. But I yeah. was thinking because, like, to usually, like, at least in the modern sense. Yeah. To torture any group that's usually tortured is like dehumanizing. Yeah. Right? Like you have to. Remove, that makes it possible. Yeah. You have to remove something from them to like be able to like inflict that pain mm -hmm. to be able to allow yourself to do it yeah, yeah. um the uh that's um i always forget the philosopher's name he was a jewish philosopher survivor of the holocaust who has this whole theory of the face oh yeah yeah uh, levinas yeah yeah levinas yeah, yeah. Levinas. and so yeah he was saying that you know the 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 holocaust uh guards whatever whatever they're called um would be more brutal to people whose faces they couldn't see Right. So if they're looking at your back, uh, it seemed that it was easier for them to be more brutal, uh, as opposed to looking at your face, especially if they knew your name. Right. So the more they see of your humanity, yeah. starting from the face, yeah. then um, the harder it was. Of course, error, and therefore doubt, may occur not only in the context of reports of pain, but of reports of any feeling. As Collingwood once put it, I can't be wrong if I feel something. Although I might be wrong, or simply lying in saying that I feel it. Okay, so you see that at that point, right? Yeah. However, addressing another's pain is not merely a matter of judging referential statements. It is about how a particular kind of relationship can be inhabited and enacted. An agent suffers because of the pain of someone she loves, a mother, say, confronted by her wounded child. That suffering is a condition of her relationship, something that includes her ability to respond sympathetically to the pain of the original sufferer. The person who suffers because of another's pain doesn't first assess the evidence presented to her and then decide on whether and how to react. She lives a relationship. The other's hurt, expressed in painful words, cries, gestures, unusual silences, in short, a recognizable rhetoric, makes a difference to her in the sense of being the active reason for her own compassion and for her reaching out to the other's pain. It is a practical condition of who she and her suffering child are. This applies equally, of course, to pleasures the two may share. Only in law does the mother stand as an individual agent with the responsibility toward the child, regardless of her actual feelings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, so it's kind of like asking... When we're talking about the certainty or uncertainty of pain, if pain is an agent, okay, then um, it's definitely my pain is an agent on me. Okay. But how does your pain become an agent on me? Okay. That's sort of what we're talking about here, right? Um, and so the first issue is, okay, do I even believe that, that you have it? Am I convinced that you have it? And then what impact does it have then on me? Right? Okay, uh, it's about 1 o'clock. Let's stop right here at the uh, uh, bottom paragraph on page uh, 82.
Right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasafiru kanatu bilaik wa akhira da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.